guy had uh, done this a hundred times, never got caught, never really maybe thought that he would get caught, find a suspected person, and he would wait till they put their money on the table and find a distraction, and he would take the money, and he would run, and this is what he found his life to be, was a life of stealing and living in the, the shadows, and one day his luck runs out, and he rounds the corner with money in his hand, and he runs into the authorities. Authorities have been looking for him for quite some time. When they arrest him, he's struggling, he's fighting, he's fighting as hard as he could because he knows the penalty that's facing him for stealing. And he fights it. And he goes to court and they find him guilty, caught red-handed, and he finds himself on a cross. He knew the penalty. It was clear to all the penalty of stealing and He found himself in that position. He was hanging on a cross with nails in his hands, in complete agony, in torture with no hope, no one around, no one to save him, and he was ready to give up. And he looks over to his right and he sees two other people on two other crosses, and He comes to learn that one of them is the Christ, the one that's been causing all of the ruckus in the community that he's been hearing about. And the other one he recognizes as a co-conspirator, someone that's a thief as well. And he recognized him. Now at the end of this story, one of the thieves is saved and goes to heaven. The other one is not. So it begs to ask the question of why? Why did one of them go to heaven and one of them did not? And this may challenge some of you that people who are guilty and have committed really bad things in their lives throughout history could be saved and could go to heaven. Some of that may be freeing to some of you, and to some of you, it could be extremely challenging. So wherever you are in that, I pray for you, that the truth, that you would hear the truth, and the truth would set us free. I have three points that I want to look at, and maybe what the world says, or maybe you have heard, or maybe something that you have thought of when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. Number one, really bad people should never be forgiven. You ever heard that or thought of that? Number two, Christians shouldn't have guilt, sin, failures, or discouragement in their lives. Number three, once you say the prayer, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, it's okay to just go on autopilot. It's okay to just hit cruise control and go on to heaven. So we're going to look at a couple of those things. We're in the Summer of Psalms as a series that we're looking at. And I was really led this week to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a very unique psalm. 
And the reason it's unique is that a lot of times when we look at the Psalms and we talk about what lamenting was last Sunday, something's bad, this is terrible in my life, then we ask God and please ask God for reprieve from this, and then we say, okay, God, whatever you want to do, and then we're going to praise you no matter what. So that's kind of lamenting, and as we look at the Psalms, we see that, we like, and we wonder sometimes, like, what was going on in whoever wrote this a lot in their lives? But we know specifically in Psalm 51, and that's why it's unique, we know exactly what was going on. It is clear, clear as it can possibly be. I'm going to read you the title to Psalm 51 in the beginning. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, clearly we know what's going on here, and we can actually look back into 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we can find out exactly the who, what, when, and where that was happening in Psalm 51 when this was being written. So let's go. If you don't have your Bibles with you, I'll have it up here. We'll have it up here on the screen for you. 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 5. And I talked about King David a little bit last Sunday and who he was, that there were judges in the Old Testament, and they started asking for a king. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you kings. And the second king that God gave them was King David, someone after God's heart. Let's read what happens. Verse 2 through 5, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sat and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she has been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. When David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he devised a scheme. He devised a scheme for her husband, Uriah, to come off of the battlefield. He sent word to go get Uriah, have him come off of the battlefield, so that hopefully he would sleep with Bathsheba, and that it would all be taken care of. That he, that he would think that this baby was his, Uriah's. But Uriah was a very ethical, moral person. He knew that his brothers who were in battle were suffering and when he was sent to come home he says I am not going to sleep with my wife my brothers in arms are out there they're fighting they're suffering they're living in horrible conditions that's the last thing I'm going to do when David found out that Uriah wasn't going along with the scheme he came up with another plan He thought, if I send him to the front lines, where the fighting is the worst, where everyone is dying, he will be killed. 
And after I get word that he is dead, then I will marry Bathsheba, and no one will know anything other. But isn't it amazing how our sin catches up to us? And Nathan, the prophet, finds out what's going on, and he comes to David. And he doesn't just come out and say, like, dude, this is bad. He tells him a story. He gives him a story, makes him realize the sin and who he was and what was going on. And David begins to repent. Fast forward to 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I would encourage you to go back. We don't have time today about all of the earthly consequences and all the things that were happening in the situation. But I wanted to fast forward to verse 13. It says, David said to Nathan, the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, here it is. I hope you hear this. The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Taken away, blotted out, separated as far as the east is from the west, forgiven of your sins. And you may say, what? Are you kidding me? Murder, adultery, a baby has died, lust, the worst sins known to man, and now you're saying that your sins have been blotted out, that they have been forgiven, that they have been passed over. Are you kidding me? Where is the justice? Where is the justice in that? I've tried to live a perfect life. I've never done any of that, and God's going to treat David that way. Are you kidding me? I know one of the struggles of at least my I have two older kids and two at home I've raised multiple teenagers pray for me, I've got two still at home but one of the hardest things that they have to think about, and it's still hard for all of us, right, as adults is to think that someone like Adolf Hitler committed all of the atrocities that he did. He's coming to the end of his time. Things are looking terrible. He's in the bunker. And he took his life or whatever. But right before that, if he was to confess his faith and repent to a holy God, truly in his heart, that he could be forgiven and he could go to heaven. That is probably one of the hardest things for my teenagers to wrestle with and to deal with and to accept. Number two, Christians shouldn't have guilt, sin, failures, or discouragement. Now, if you're around me long enough, you're going to find out. Sometimes I have discouragement, I have guilt, and I'm sure it's with you as well. But I think a lot of times people, especially from the outside looking in, they think like Christians are perfect. They have to be perfect. They can't have any discouragement or be upset. King David, like, he had, he, he, God had a heart for King David. 
He was saved by his faith. And that's sometimes theologically, we'd have to unpack that as far as someone in the Old Testament that had put their faith and trust in the coming Messiah. and They're saved by their faith. But he was saved by his faith. He didn't know fully the Messiah and Jesus as we know, but he knew the part of it and a little bit of it. But he was saved by his faith alone. But to think that someone as a follower of, of God, as that God loves them, wouldn't have guilt, sin, failures, or discouragement, I want to look at Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after this event happened. Psalm 51. <clears throat> Verse 1 through 4 starts off, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, the Psalms teaches us it's important to read the Psalms, to meditate on the Psalms, to pray the Psalms, because it teaches us as Christians how to deal with life, how we should look at life, how we should look at our relationship with God, the things to think about, not things to avoid. We shouldn't avoid these things, but how to deal with things like crushing guilt. Even Jesus' disciples look to the Psalms as what to think about and, and life and how to deal with the emotions and the guilt and the sins and the failures and the discouragements. So I think that we should as well. What I want you to notice here is that David, he's not saying, Lord, I'm going to work really hard to not have lustful eyes again. Lord, I, I'm going to do all I can. I'm going to give all of this money to, your, to Uriah's family. I, I, I'm going to pray for 50 days straight. He doesn't He's not saying that. He, he's confessing his weakness. He's confessing his weakness to God. And, and if you know anything about the Bible, our weakness is where God's strength is made perfect. In our weakness, for David to admit that I am weak and you are strong, Verse 9 through 12. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and hold me with a willing spirit. See, David is asking God in his strength, in David's weakness and in God's strength, to do this within me. He never says, I can do this. I can create a clean heart. No, he's asking and begging God out of your strength and my weakness to do this within me. Remember the 
Jesus Loves Me song? You ever sing that as a kid? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. He is strong. That doesn't apply to little kids. That applies to me. It applies to you. You are weak. Weak. But he is strong. I was uh, leading a class in F3 about um, leadership, and we were talking about mission, and then our mission, right, as Christians are to make disciples, right, to, to love one another, to love God first and love others, and then, and then make disciples. And we were talking about, like, once, I was thinking through this from a Christian perspective, of like, well, once we kind of understand, like, who we are in Christ, and then we help others, right, to make disciples, and then we're in this rhythm, and I was really, like, thinking about that throughout the day. I was like, how do we really boil this down to we as Christians are supposed to make disciples? Like, if I was, if I had just a few minutes with somebody, like, what am I supposed to, like, disciple them, to point them to, to Christ? And I was just thinking through this psalm, and I was like, if I could just tell people that they are weak, and he is strong. You are weak, and he is strong. Like, God wants a life, a really good, a true life for you. But you have to admit that you're weak. And you have to admit that he is strong. And you have to surrender to him. I may not know a lot about finances or relationships or anything that we struggle with. Ultimately, my job is to point you to Christ, that, that, to remind you that who you are in Christ and that you are weak and that he is strong. That we are sinners, that he is God. And that you will experience guilt and failure and discouragement. Number three. Once we say the prayer, we can just go on cruise control. I want to look at verse 13. It says this. This is the last verse we'll look at in Psalm 51 says, then David saying, I've committed all these sins, cry out to God, I've, I've changed my mind, I've asked for forgiveness, and now I'm asking God to do these changes in my life because I know that I can't. And then he says, when God does that in my life, then, and then only, will I teach transgressors your way, God, and sinners will return to you. Sinners will return to you. David saw in his life that he had a calling to share with others what he had. I was driving Natty back from basketball practice as a little confession to you guys. I was driving him back from basketball practice where on the other side of St. Charles, way past the mall, down that way, I don't know, somewhere back there. And uh, driving him home from basketball, this camp that he's in, and I noticed this large SUV, like, right on my bumper. And I'm going over the speed limit, I'm like, what's this guy's problem, you know? Like, the old me wanted to, like, tap my brakes, you know, to really get this person's attention, and I was like, nah, I shouldn't do that, you know? That's the old gene, I shouldn't do that. 
And so we're just driving. He's right. And I got, I'm trying to figure out somewhere to pull over. It's like, what's this guy's hurry? And then I see the stoplight, and I'm like, oh, can't go around anyway. So I stop the stoplight, turn right, and not really thinking anything, not realizing he was behind me. And I realized I got to get gas. So I started to get over. Well, he had tried to, like, come around me at that point. I didn't go out far in the lane, just a little bit. And I didn't, I said, like, oh, I'll just come back. I'll get gas somewhere else. Didn't think anything about it. Well, he goes down on the right side, keeps going, stops at the stoplight, and I'm behind like eight cars on the left. And I see him stopped, but he's not turning right. He's got his right turn signal on, but he's not going. And then we're like coming up, and I'm thinking, is this guy waiting on me? Like, what's going on? And I get up, and he's got his head out the window. He's telling me I'm number one. I didn't know that. He's like screaming at me. And I'm like, what is going on? And I, like, slow down, and I, like, honk my horn, like, you little punk, you know, like some 20-year-old kid. And then he spits, he hawks up this loogie and spits it on our car. Pray for me. I don't know exactly what came out of my mouth and exactly what I did, but I remember asking Natty for forgiveness afterwards. So pray for your pastor. It was not a, it was not a very good moment. And then I drove off, and I felt, felt really guilty. Um, nothing bad happened, but I was just like, Whoa, you know, somebody spit on you. <laughs> I'm like, what is this kid's problem? And um, so anyway, so we drove. I asked Natty for forgiveness. And, um, but I was thinking after that, like, this, this kid really needs to know Jesus. Like, you know, something is really wrong. You know, he's having a bad day, probably. And, but I was thinking, man, I, that, and I was also thinking about forgiveness, that, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, like, how should we pray? And so he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give, this day, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses, Right? We ask God to do that. He's faithful to do that. Freedom and forgiveness. But with great reward comes great responsibility to forgive those. The next line says, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So as we have freedom and forgiveness, we have to be reminded that we've been given great responsibility to forgive those in our lives, because we've all been there having bad days. Not to say you should ever be remain in a bad situation or not set up boundaries with people, but we are called to forgive. And we are called to share the hope that we have with people and, and not to just be put on cruise control going to heaven. Like there, We don't save people. God saves people, but he uses us. He uses us. To tell people that we are weak, but he is strong. So I want to close it out this. I want to ask you this question. If you went to heaven today and you were asked, why are you here? Why are you here? If you start off with that sentence as I, I tried to be a really good person. I went to church every Sunday. I prayed the prayer. 
I did this or I did that, I would just have to challenge you in that maybe you have a wrong way of thinking. It's the third person. It starts with he. He. The first thief on the cross, he joined in with the crowd, mocking Jesus, mocking him. Oh, yeah, if you were king of the Jews, you could just get us off of here. Gathers up enough energy to raise his chest off of the cross to mock Jesus. The other thief raises enough energy to remove his chest off of the cross and say, we're the ones that are guilty. He's the one that's innocent. Don't you fear the Lord? He confesses his sin. I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. This guy is innocent. It's he. He is the one. And he says, Lord, would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? He put his faith in the one who was innocent. And Jesus said, for today, you will be with me in paradise. He was saved. And you might have said, what? This guy had never done anything in his life to deserve to go to heaven. He was never at a church meeting. He never committed, a, he always committed crimes. He never helped anyone. He was not a church member. He didn't go to a Bible study. He never gave a dime to a church. He never shared the gospel. He was never baptized. He never even set his eyes on the Bible. And you're telling me that he went to heaven? And I'm sure the angels, because the Bible says that the angels long, they look, they peer, they long, they stretch their neck out to under, try to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And they had to have said, well, how in the world, thief on the cross, did you get here? How did you get to heaven? And he's probably like, I don't know, I'm just here. I heard Alistair Baggs say it, say it like that. So, I don't know, I'm just here. The guy in the middle, he said I could come, and I'm here. It's because of he and not I. And we should humble ourselves and admit that we are sinners, that we are weak. Depend on Jesus to forgive us and to change us. And to tell others that he was innocent. That he lived a perfect life. And if you put your trust and faith in him, that you will be saved. No matter how big or how small your sins. Or how big your sins. I'll say that again. No matter how big your sins, your transgressions, it's never too late to repent, and to put your faith in Jesus. David was forgiven. Hitler would have been forgiven. I don't think he was. Never repentant. 
the thief on the cross was forgiven because they confessed their weakness and they depended upon the strength of the Lord. That could be you today. I pray, as I pray, I pray that people are coming to the end of themselves, admit that they are weak, that he is strong, and they depend upon him and not I. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have uh, communion after that. And so let us, let us go to the Lord in prayer. In the Father, Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. I thank you for the freedom we have in forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you remind us every day, whether it be through the Psalms, whether it be through church, whether it be through another Christian, whether it be through our quiet time through the week, something we hear on the radio that you would remind us every day that we are weak and that you are strong, that your power is made perfect in our weakness, and that when we confess our weakness and depend upon your strength is when you work, that we die to self, we turn to you, we confess that we are sinners, that we are weak and that you are strong. I pray, Lord, that you work in that weakness to help us to become more like Jesus every day. I pray that those around us see they see it, that you're opening eyes, that you help us to not be on cruise control, but that you help remind us that as much as we have been forgiven, that you give us, you didn't need to do it, but you ask us to, to be involved with the work that you're doing here, to see those that ha- are dead spiritually to come to life. What a great honor it is, Lord, that you have chosen us You say when we leave this body, that we are absent from the body and we are present with the Lord, that today you'll be with me in paradise. But in the moment that we're here, Lord, you ask us to be on mission for you. So, Lord, we thank you for that. I pray anyone here, Lord, today that has heard the good news of the gospel, that no matter how big their sins, that the blood of Christ covers all of our sins, that we can live in our weakness, and that you can work in and through us. I pray, Lord, that people are confessing that. I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of that as we go about. Lord, I pray as we take communion that we would stop for a moment and reflect on your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for our freedoms. Freedom in Christ.